So can you hear me all right? Yes? So this is our last session. What kind of feeling, what kind of feelings arise? (laughs) Attachment? Relief? (laughs) Sadness? Joy? Interesting, yeah? And uh, during this uh, last few days, you've really been able to witness the amount of uh, uh, changes that has, have taken place in yourself. How many, um, how many feelings have arisen? How many stories? How many memories? How many, um, how many things have come up in the mind and disappeared? Even if you wanted to conjure them up again, you, you might not even be able to. How, how much you will, you'll try. That which arose, which arose two or three days ago, sometimes it's gone, you know, even trying to remember it. Trying to remember feelings. I mean, the feelings are that which really, uh, catches so, um, painfully sometimes, you know, feelings, emotions. And yet, maybe you had a very strong emotion two or three days ago and you try to recall that feeling and it's gone. So, um, you have tasted, in a way, the, the experience of cessation. Yesterday I was talking to you about the first noble truth, dukkha, the second noble truth, samudaya, the cause of suffering, and then the cause of suffering, the understanding of the cause of suffering, takes us to um, the realization of niroda, cessation. Um, You may be aware that there is a, the first teaching that the Buddha gave was the, called the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the Sutta of the Turning of the Wheel of Dhamma in which he expounds the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And it's very uh, clearly uh, stated how we use those truths, how we use the recognition of dukkha. Dukkha has to be understood. Samudaya has to be abandoned. The cause of suffering has to be abandoned. Niroda has to be realized. That's the place of insight. Satchikataban should be satcha means the truth should made should be made true to oneself. So it's not a matter of believing anymore in cessation, of um, thinking about cessation, is seeing directly cessation. As my teacher used to say, if you think that the end of the path, the goal of the path is to realize that everything ceases is not self. This is not you, this is just suffering. Sounds rather dreary, doesn't it? As a prospect for the future, our future life. The idea of just seizing constantly with nothing left doesn't kind of um, stir up the, stirs up the heart, does it? Doesn't inspire the heart. If I said to you, the blossoming, the growing, the developing, the increasing, the progress, look at that, Louisa is already... <laughs> 
His eyebrows are really risen up two or three inches <laughs> upward. It was cessation. You really start looking kind of, oh, God, what is she talking about? But really, cessation is uh, not so attractive as a, as, as a practice. People want the truth, they want liberation, but they haven't realized that it only happens through the understanding, direct insight into the truth of cessation. That's the place of letting go. When you've let go and seen what happens when you let go, seen clearly what happens when you let go, then you can have, you have a chance to realize cessation. Now most of us are fascinated by the arising of conditions, by the beginning of things, by the the birth, you notice a little baby, we can all rejoice when the baby is born. We kind of go gaga, goo goo of a little baby. You know, do that with an old person, that's not quite the feeling that arises naturally in the heart, is it? You know, we don't go gaga, goo goo of a, an old granny or, you know, hi, can smile. <laughs> Isn't he cute? <laughs> You know, so birth, even in nature, you can see there's an immediate kind of response is that wanting to re- rejoice, wanting to celebrate. But as many Dharma teachers said, the celebration should be more at death, you know, when, rather than birth, because birth is being reborn into the realm of suffering, a realm of trial and tribulation. And um, so Niroda, the truth, the third noble truth, is probably the most important. You know, they are on the path of realization, that's where realization takes place. It's a Niroda, it's a cessation of attachment, the cessation of wrong view, the cessation of suffering caused by our clinging to uh, anything. It's a cessation of unskillful behavior. You know. So um, how, we, how do we realize this? How do we see? You know. First of all, I think it's important to know the obstacle that prevents us from seeing the cessation. Once you begin to witness in your everyday life how much you want to be born all the time, how much you want to be uh, to begin again? You know, it's like a, our society encourages us to do, to go into that mode all the time. You know, the whole culture is just run on being born into something new, better, richer. Uh, you know, it's a constant. You know, it's a culture that is, you know, worshiping birth. Doesn't care much about death. When you die with this birth, it calls you. You're being called. You know, if you're attached to die, to death, then you become depressed. You become. Uh, you know, you feel sad. You feel undermined. You feel victimized. That's birth and death. You have the birth. Oh, a new car. Oh, a new job. Oh, a new partner. A new friend. A new dog. A new whatever is new. A new train of thought, a new insight, even. You know, so we attach to that. We get happy and elated and inspired. 
And then we haven't seen that this attachment will lead us to death. And death is this when the attachment to inspiration goes, what we are left is desperation <laughs> or disappointment. We just get disappointed. We get inspired and then disappointed. Now, when you to see the cessation in that particular context, let's say we feel inspired and then we feel dispirited, disappointed, depressed, and so on. You know. Cessation will be to notice those feelings when they arise, to notice the suffering of being attached to inspiration, for example. Because if we attach to inspiration, we want things always to go well, because inspiration goes with the feeling of happiness, the feeling of uplift. But life is not an ongoing uh, uplift, is it? <laughs> Just have to watch the news every day. Don't have to go very far. How, how, how much we can keep our life being uplifted forever, you know. But certainly what we can do all the time when we um, put our attention to it is that we can realize the Dhamma, realization of Dhamma. Let us, let us be taught by life. Let us learn from life. Let us receive life as a teaching, as a way of maturing and realizing more deeply the truth of cessation. And when I want to reiterate the fact that when we say cessation, it's a cessation of the conditioned, uh, deluded mind. And of course, because that's all we know, we think that if I I I let that go, there will be there won't be nothing nothing left of me, you know. Yet you've already seen how many dramas just in your life you've let go. You're still bursting with life, aren't you? How many attachments you had you let go over the years? You haven't disappeared, have you? You haven't vanished from this from the planet because you let go of whatever you know, whatever was a problem for you maybe ten, five years ago. Something you thought you could never live without. You felt you could die if you lived without, and yet you survived. As my teacher would say. He's always came to the point in his practice where he will say, I can't bear it, this. I can't, I can't. The attachment to wanting things to go away, you know. Wanting to, whatever it was, can't bear it, you know. Whatever, whatever you, you would apply that thought, you know. I can't bear it. And then he would say, but I notice I could always bear it. <laughs> If I was patient enough with that thought, I can't bear it, the next moment I was still bearing it. <laughs> and the next moment, and the next moment. So we often come to that point in life or just in a meditation, session of meditation, you know, where you feel, I can't bear that anymore. It might not manifest as a thought, but it's intense feeling in the gut that is informing the brain, get out. <laughs> it's just a, a movement in your gut that just say, out, I'm out, <laughs> can't stand it. And so cessation, will, you know, if you really want to realize Dhamma, then you have to stay with that feeling that wants to 
you know, push away what is unpleasant, cling to the idea of pleasant idea. Like when you sit and you feel, I can't bear that anymore. I just can't bear that pain. I can't bear that train of thought. I've seen it a hundred times. I'm fed up. I've had enough. I've heard this 20 times. I've had enough. You know, just to be able to say, okay, I've heard you, <laughs> but I, I still can bear it. I can bear it. And then you find if you do that long enough, then it ceases because attachment is dependent on conditions. It's dependent of being averse to something or being attracted to something. That's how attachment thrives. You know, right? So if you're just observing, witnessing, then suddenly there is no fuel for attachment to be there. And what is left is peacefulness. Who wants peace? Huh. We want peace, sure. That's great. So we need to get a taste for it. It's an acquired taste in our culture. Not only our society is committed totally worshipping birth, but it's also worshipping distractions. It's worshipping confusion. The more confused you are, the more discontent you will be, the more you will buy. In fact, I used to say when I, when I was teaching once uh, the five hindrances when I was living in England, I said our society, it was, uh, uh, the uh, theme was the five hindrances and I used to, I told the, the people, you know, that actually, you know, we are here to practice to understand the five hindrances and let them go and, and, you know, and see the end of the five hindrances, the arising and then understanding the nature of anicca, dukkha, anatta. But our society is totally, uh, again, total commitment to developing and cultivating the five hindrances. Have you noticed that? You are taught daily to cultivate love and hate you want to know those who don't know the five hindrances, love and hate, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. Okay? So all the uh, billboards are about making you want something, comparing with something else, so that you can dislike one brand and like another one, a better one. It makes you doubt all the time because uh, you have so many choices that you, you're paralyzed with choices. You don't know which way to turn. It makes you worry and restless because you keep being bombarded with, um, you keep being, we keep, we keep being brainwashed with the idea that what we've got now is not enough. We don't have enough of this or that. We don't know enough. We don't have enough PhDs. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough good health. Even though we are much better health than many people around the world, still we're complaining about our health. You know, this is not what you want even to hear, but this is what we keep being brainwashed with. This kind of notions of that breeds that breeds discontent ongoingly. You know. So it's very important to know what is this brainwashing system that we are part of. You know? That doesn't want us to cease to, to, to witness any cessation, but 
want us to be born again and again and again through discontent. And somebody once asked me, well, how do I work as my discontent? I said, well, just be content with your discontent. <laughs> just begin the way you are, so to speak. You know, Don't try to find another teacher to work with your discontent. Don't try to find another... Uh, new therapist to find, you know, just be content with that experience of discontent. Just be at peace with that, basically. Just start looking at it where you are, rather than saying, oh, there's something wrong with me. I think my mother didn't give me enough love when I was young, and my I had a bad school experience, and my boyfriend, you know, he was nasty when I was 18, and da 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 you know, and I wasn't capable of doing this and that, da, 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 and my, uh, 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 goes on and on and on and on, you know. Ah, oh, it's exhausting just to think about it. But do you know that we do that all the time to ourselves? You know, I had a very good insight with a Janjamian's retreat recently. Something very simple, which, uh, it was very, very clever of him. He made us count very loudly within ourselves, without speaking. Just count. He said, you think thoughts. He was saying, why do you think thoughts? When you feel thought, everybody thought. I feel thought here, you know. And he said, well, try this out and feel where thought arises. So maybe we can do this experiment right now. Okay? Close your eyes. And just count very, very loudly up to ten. Finished? Okay. Where was the thought arising? Can you point on your body? Which part of the body was the thought arising? There you go. Oh, <laughs> Louis, you're unusual. <laughs> what have you been doing with your chakras? <laughs> so, we have to have a bit of work to do. So this is happening here, isn't it? For whom, beside Louis, it wasn't happening here? Well, it's the same thing, more or less, yes, that area. Where was it happening? In your jaw? Right. Well, there's a bit of work to do. <laughs> okay, yes, where? Oh, I see. You heard it in your ears. Okay. Do you want to, shall we do it again? One more time? Yeah? Okay. Let's do it again. Loud. Don't think. Just say it. And feel your whole body seeing it. Okay, what was it? Yeah. So most of us, yeah, most of us, well, we have different parts of our body that resonate with thinking, you know. And, um, but what really, um, uh, struck me was that really we feel it here a lot. You know, this is where thoughts is experienced. And when we experience thinking here, you realize how much weight is held here, how much burden we carry around the heart here. You notice when you speak to yourself gently and softly, like either in prayers or in meditation, you're just repeating a gentle word, peace or something without too much resistance, 
then it soothes the heart, doesn't it? It's like the heart, the thought that arises in the heart is soothing and calming and appeasing, you know. So what the insight I had was really interesting for me is like how many times do we carry on a lot of negativity or, uh, you know, a lot of heavy thoughts, you know, coming from a sort of sadness or sort of, um, you know, that comes from, uh, you know, so that, uh, sorry, not so that comes from, but so that gives rise to sadness, to um, jealousy, to anger, to frustration, to irritation, to whatever, you know, to, to a desire to overpower people, the desire to, you know, all sorts of things, desire to compete. So all these thoughts are resonating in the heart here. Now you understand why we say, she or he has a burdened heart. You know. It's like this cave of resonance, you know, echoing here. And that's really the insight is that how much we have, no, excuse me, Anne, unless you have a physical, it's actually, well, we'll talk about that later. Uh, no excuse to lie down unless you have a physical, real physical problems, okay? So, um, this, the fact that it resonates in the heart, you know, just to realize how much we carry around and that incentive to really be kind to oneself, you know. It brought in me a deeper commitment to really be kind and gentle with this heart. Because this is our body, in a way, that's what is holding us together, alive. And a lot of the time, we may not be able to avoid, you know, the resultant karma that we have, you know, of anger, of, I mean, all the negative mental states I mentioned just now, we may not be able to, you know, this is just what's happening to us. We can't avoid it, we can't repress it, we can't move out of the karmic predicament we are a part of. But at least we can begin to receive things gently. And that takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Receive things with, a, we say, I mean, you've heard it many times, with a compassionate heart, with compassion, with loving kindness, with gentleness. And so to go back to cessation, it's like when you have to bear with things which are difficult. Most of the time we have a numbers of ways of dealing with that. We resist. We want to cut it out of our experience, whatever is unpleasant and difficult to bear. We want to distract ourselves, ignore it, or we criticize ourselves. We bring up the judge. Thou shall be whatever. You notice how we deal? We have numbers of ways which are so heavy to the heart that we can't see anything. That's why cessation is very rarely experienced. Because to experience cessation, you need a peaceful heart. You need really to be able to see clearly what's happening without any reactions. If there is any reaction, it starts being confusing. Things become confused. Like let's say you are uh, you're going through a period of depression or sadness. If you are, if you really want to see the cessation of that, you have to give yourself a chance. You know, don't give up on yourself. Give yourself a chance by allowing the heart to, to feel that experience peacefully so it understands 
When you're connected and you feel and you look at it with a peaceful heart, you understand more clearly. See? Our mode of understanding things is often completely out of sync with the truth, out of sync with Dhamma. So instead of, we try to understand conceptually, we try to, you know, understand through creating a self that's caused this, caused our problems, that has, is a culprit of our misery. So we go back into a deluded mode again and again, create a self, we try to solve our problem with a sense of self. So there's a bad self that needs to be solved, and then a good self that is going to, <laughs> that is going to come and rescue the bad self, you know. Or we project it. We can certainly, we make somebody else the fault of the misery that we experience. We project it out. So, there is another way. <laughs> the way of cessation is a way that leads to uh, the ending of delusion, the ending of suffering, and the ending of misapprehension and the realization of truth. So um, this is what I was talking about this morning. Remember when I said you have to go through that little tunnel where you feel uncomfortable, not very at ease, but this is a place where you need to have confidence in what we call in Buddhism the refuges, which is another topic and we took I could talk about it all day. It's my favorite topics. The refuges, which is not just a devotional sort of mumbling, you know, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. It's not a kind of, you know, uh, another thing to believe. It's refuge in the awakened mind, in the mind that is potential, that is awake. When you're mindful, this is your refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha nature, when you are in touch with Dhamma, that's your refuge in the truth, seeing things as they are. As anicca, you can begin simply, anicca, dukkha, anatta, seeing, not believing. And the refuge in the Sangha, which is a refuge in the qualities of the enlightened, the enlightened disciples of the Buddha, the Buddha himself, the, 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 the fact that we can develop the same quality and realize in the same way and purify the heart in the same way. That's a, to have the confidence that there is a possibility of awakening, the possibility of realizing the truth, and the possibility of purifying the heart. This is your refuge now. You don't have anything else. If you don't take refuge in the sense of self, in the, in the misapprehension that creates constantly a self, then you have to have another thing to rest in. And your rest is a refuges, you know. And they are very much part of yourself. Is not the, these words are pointers, you know. There is no now. You don't take refuge in following desires through impulses of, of motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. Now you take refuge in observing the desire, in studying the desire, in understanding desire. So you can see the difference, don't you? Between um, taking refuge in self and taking refuge in the triple gems. Uh, When that's the only way you can realize cessation. As as long as you take refuge in a sense of self, 
then there is agitation, there is reaction, there is pain, there is suffering. Simple. You can't. You can see that pain and suffering when you take refuge in the Buddha, the awakened mind, the Dhamma, the truth, and the Sangha, the purity of your own heart. You understand? So, um, from cessation, we go on to the fourth noble truth. Cessation that leads to peace, that leads to the ending of um, clinging, attachment, and the realization of peace. The fourth noble truth is a path of practice, the noble eightfold path. And that is a path that begins with right view, right understanding. Right view, right understanding. In Pali, Samaditi. Seeing things in accord with Dhamma. Not in accord with delusion, but in accord with Dhamma. And um, if uh, I was reading this earlier on, once you have right view, then everything falls into place. Once you have seen, you know, that clinging to suffering breeds more suffering, letting go of suffering leads to the ending of suffering, you can just begin with that, with that paradigm. Don't need to go very far. You don't need a very complicated teaching to realize the ending of avidya, delusion. Um, right view, there's a canonical, um, you know, explanation of right view but right view really it's understanding the four noble truths it's understanding that there is suffering there is a cause there is an ending and there is a path that keeps you on track to keep on realizing the ending of suffering so right view when you have an understanding of this and you go to right thought Right intention, because this intention in the Buddhist teaching is divided into three aspects. It's intention to renounce, to let go. The intention to, um, of, um, uh, the intention to be kind and compassionate. You know, it's stated um, in the in the teaching. It's nekamma, renunciation non-ill will and non-cruelty. These are the three aspects of right intention. So we take refuge in that, in, the, in developing, cultivating right intention. Of course, all our intention, all the intention that we meet in our everyday life, in our meditation, in worldly, have very little to do with those three intentions. But these, remember, this is, this is a, a reference point so you begin to let go by reminding yourself that your intention is to let go. Your intention is to simplify things. Your intention is to not act on thought of cruelty and to not act on thought of ill will. You know? And you're not supposed to get it right straight away. You know? It's a path of humility. It's a path that shows you how many times you get it wrong, in fact. So you have no doubt <laughs> of who you are. <laughs> However enlightened you think you have been and how many insights you think you have had, 
how many meditation ret- retreats you think you've done and how many teachers you've met, how many you know, connection with the divine powers you've done, you've, you've made, still, if you still think with a thought that is cruel, uh, unkind, uh, violent, and greedy, that's where you are <laughs> for the time being, you know. You still got some work to do, in other words. So, um, right intention. Right intention leads us naturally to right action, right speech, right livelihood. The first two correspond to the panya aspect of the past, the wisdom aspect of the past. Right intention, sorry, right understanding or right view and leading to right intention. And then right, the, 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 uh, the next three are, are refers to the um, ethical or the moral aspect of the path. Right livelihood, right action, right speech, and right livelihood. So this is a moral aspect of the path, the ethical aspect, where you have to, you know, which, com- which include the precepts, the five precepts of refraining from killing, stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, and um, taking drugs and intoxicant, which leads to carelessness. Uh, but really, um, it's uh, also uh, the, the aspect of the practice which uh, are related to our body, actions, and speech. Okay. So, uh, right action, right speech, right livelihood. Uh, without, we don't have a lot of time to go into details. You can find this in many books. But just to say that the whole spirit of those three aspects is really... Uh, compassion, harmlessness, respect for life, respect for oneself and all beings, which manifests as speech, as uh, actions, and in the way, in the, your own profession, the what you do in everyday, in your everyday life, you know. So just to, know, to, to pay attention to that. You know, the, the, you, know, you can get very bogged down in, you know, by the details that you find in, written in books. But you know, books sometimes make us really lazy because we just don't want to do the work ourselves. We don't want to tap into the wisdom that we already have and do our own work, so to speak. You know, in the forest tradition... The, the, the spirit of training was you just left to simmer in your own stuff for days and months until you understand yourself. You don't go and see the teacher every five minutes. The idea of being taught is that you just stay there in the soup for a while until wisdom arises, understanding arises, and you know you don't need anybody to... You, you have no doubt anymore. The end of doubt. Because you know yourself... And that can never leave you. It's like, it's part of you. You know. So, he, I encourage you to, to really reflect yourself, rather than to always go back to all these Dharma books that are, that are around, that fill your brains with lots of more thoughts, more concepts, more ideas, that makes you feel inspired for a few minutes, and then you're back into the trenches again. Trenches? Yes, you know, of misery and 
self-pity and inadequacy and all the rest of it. So people say, how do I empower myself? Just learn how to um, um, come to that place of direct experience. You know, without direct experience, you, there's no empowerment. You're just still at the mercy of any old body that comes along and say, you know, this and uh, this, this and that. You, you, without experience, and every teacher will make you more mind-boggled, you know, confused, doubtful. But when you have the experience, then you know. And you can even, when you hear somebody, you can hear beyond the words. You're not so bogged down by words anymore. You know, you can actually hear the wisdom of somebody beyond concepts. So, um, to um, these the, the three aspects of sila, or shila in Sanskrit, sila, virtue, um, that once you, you know, the Buddha said, the reason why we cultivate sila is so that, so that our mind can be free from remorse and regrets. So simple, isn't it? So obvious. When we act unskillfully by speech and by body, then our mind is full of remorse and regret, full of anxiety, worry, restlessness, and so on. So just let it sink down a bit, you know, and daily you can do your own reflection. The Buddha asks us to do a bit of work, you know, not just to wait for people to, spe- to spoon, spoon feed us so that we have nothing to do and just get the result without moving the little finger, as we say, you know. There's work to do. And that we, once the body is more calm because it's less anxiety and remorse and regret, then that calms down our whole body. All the stress that we get from not acting skillfully in life is, decreases. Even the pain in the body goes. You know, just through acting more ethically, compassionately, kindly, wisely, and so on. And once you know, and as we become as we become more calm and at peace with ourselves, then the meditation aspects, which are the three last links of the noble eightfold path, right effort, right medi- uh, right concentration, and right mindfulness, then you know that comes much more easily when there's a foundation of peace in our heart. You know, if you're restless, confused, miserable, upset doubtful, conflicted. You can't sit still for a moment, can you? You see people when they are in a state of agitation. They, you can't, it's not, the word meditation will be an offense to them. Sit, sitting still will be offensive. No. So, um, the Noble Eightfold Path, sometimes uh, described as Sila Samadipanya, the last one, the last three, were the samadhi aspect, which doesn't mean just concentration. It means all the aspect of meditation, you know, effort, concentration, and mindfulness. And effort is something that is really important to consider, very important, because we fritter our life's energy often without knowing it. We let it fritter away. You know, squander it as if we had endless 
endless energy. But most of us here are pretty middle-aged somehow. I mean, not everybody, but quite a few of us. And we know as we get older that we don't have the same, can't tap into the same source of energy. We have to be much more careful. In fact, I realized that when I was just in my early 33, 32, 31. That's what actually brought me to the Dhamma, is when I realized that I had a lot of energy and I was not using it properly, you know, skillfully. And I wanted to. Not that I did not want to, but I wanted to, but I did not know how to do it. So when I found the path of practice and it became absolutely as clear as crystal, to me that was the way to uh, transform energy or to use one's energy so that the, my life will be uh, a better experience and the life of others will too. So um, meditation deals with the mind itself. So sila is more specifically addresses physical action and verbal actions and the meditation deals with the mind directly. You know, seeing carefully what goes on in the mind. This is what you've been doing. You've been very brave, really. Most people are having lots of fun out there and then you're just sitting on your, you know, sitting, (laughs) sitting, walking, doing this slow walking meditation and having to listen to me all day and (laughs) or listen to your mind all day. That's quite, it takes courage, doesn't it? To have to bear with your own mind. You know, to bear with your, you know, with your own thinking that just goes on and on and on and on forever. So, um, this is what meditation, you might not see the result now, but don't be attached to results because that's again going back into a self mood, going back into a wrong view. You know, don't expect results. You will know results. Give yourself five or ten years to really appreciate the result of your life. I was impressed with Mitra. Do you mind if I tell anybody your age? It's all right? See the result of somebody who lived a good life. Well, you, I don't, maybe, yeah. anyway, Mitra looks much younger than he is. <laughs> You see, this is a result of a good life, 75. Nobody will know. This is what happens when you live skillfully your life. You know? It doesn't mean that you always do that. You know? <laughs> Ajahn Shah was sick at the age of 65, I think, or 61 even. You know? he, he lost, he had a stroke and he was never able to speak again to communicate again. For 10 years, his students took care of him day and night, 24 hours a day for 10 years. That's what I mean, don't expect results. But you know that when you live a good and ethical, good life with consciousness, with mindfulness, your old age certainly will be you know, improved. Your life will improve, the quality of your life will improve. So, now we come to the end. You've had the first noble truth, second, third, and fourth. And um, 
it's up to you to uh, apply those teachings in your everyday life. So that instead of spending a whole day thinking about stupid things, you might as well think about the teachings. That will help you. And they say, well, people might say, well, I mean, why is it you have to think so much and reflect and do a lot of this and a lot of that? But you know, as one Thai teacher said in Thailand, we spend <coughs> a great part of our life thinking in a way that are actually harmful to us most of the time. We don't even know it. Ask somebody to do a mindfulness practice with the breath for one minute and the whole system goes out of, goes crazy. You see how much our addiction to delusion is strong? It was wonderful, this teaching. You know, she's a very enlightened woman, teacher. And it's so true. We spend a lot of our time doing all sorts of things that actually harming our life. But we, don't, we do it without qualms. As soon as we are asked to do something just a little bit skillful, you know, like be more mindful, a bit more giving, a bit more generous, a bit more thoughtful, you know, oh, how am I going to do that? You know, I've got, I haven't got time. You know, how can I sit? I haven't got time to do that. Plenty of time to watch TV, though. Or plenty of time to listen to your CDs. But, you know, that just keep piling up brain, uh, you know, and stressful brain waves into your brain channels. But one moment of silence, mindfully sitting, is like, I've got to do this. I've got to do something else, more important. You see? This is why the Buddha is called the physician of the mind, because really we have to deal with a serious illness called delusion. But it's all right. It's not what we are. That's the news. We're not deluded. We just believe we are. <laughs> we just attach to this condition for so long that we believe that's what we are. But the teaching is very hopeful. It says you're not this miserable lump of delusion. You are more than that. You know. There is brightness, says. In fact, I'm going to read you a little passage from Ajahn Shah to end. You know, there is more to this. And that's just the, you know, I can find it. So this is an experience from Ajahn Shah. It's high time we started to meditate. Meditate to understand, to abandon, to relinquish, and to be at peace. It's difficult to put it into words, but it's as if somebody wanted to, to get to know me. 
they have to come and live here. He talks about his monastery. Eventually, with daily contact, we would get to know each other. I used to be a wandering monk. I'd travel by foot to visit teachers and seek solitude. I didn't go around giving Dhamma talks. I went to listen to the Dhamma talks and of the great Buddhist masters of the time. I didn't go to teach them. I listened to whatever advice they had to offer. Even when young or junior monks tried to tell me what the Dhamma was, I listened patiently. However, I rarely got into discussions about the Dhamma. I could not see the point in getting involved in lengthy discussions. Whatever teaching, teachings I accepted, I took on board straight away, directly, where they pointed to reno- sorry. Whatever teaching I accepted, I took on board straight away, directly where they pointed to renunciation and letting go. What I did, I did for renunciation and letting go. We don't have to become experts in the scriptures. We are getting older with every day that passes and every day we pounces on a mirage. Missing the real thing, practicing the Dharma is something quite different than studying it. I don't criticize any of the wide varieties of meditation style and techniques. As long as we understand their true purpose and meaning, they are not wrong. However, calling ourselves Buddhist meditators but not strictly following the the monastic code of discipline, you could say the five precepts for you, will, in my opinion, never meet with success. Why? Because we try to bypass a vital section of the path, skipping over virtue, samadhi or wisdom. Some people may tell you not to get attached to the serenity of samatha meditation. Don't bother with samatha, advance straight to the wisdom and insight practices of vipassana. As I see it, if we attempt to detour straight to vipassana, we'll find it impossible to successfully complete the journey. Don't forsake the style of practice and meditation techniques techniques of the eminent forest masters, such as Verbal Ajahn Man, Sao, Tongra, Upali. The path they taught is utterly reliable and true. If we do it the way they did it, if we follow in their footsteps, we'll gain true insight into ourselves. Ajahn Shah cared for his virtue impeccably. He was a fully enlightened being. He cared for his virtue impeccably. He didn't say we should bypass it. If these great masters of the forest tradition recommended practicing meditation and monastic etiquette in a particular way, then out of disrespect for them, we should follow what they taught. If they said to do it, then do it. If they said to stop because it's wrong, then stop. We do it out of faith, confidence. We do it with an unwavering sincerity and determination. We do it until we see the Dhamma in our own hearts. Until we are the Dhamma. This is what the forest masters taught. Their disciples consequently developed profound respect, awe and affection for them because it was through their following their path that they saw what their teachers saw. Give it a try. Do it just like I say. If you actually do it, you'll see the Dhamma. Be the Dhamma. If you actually undertake the search, what would stop you? The defilements of the mind will be vanquished if you approach them with the right strategy. Be someone who renounces, let go, who renounces. One who is frugal with words, who is content with little, and who abandons all views and opinions stemming from self-importance and conceit. You will then be able to listen to anyone patiently, even 
if what they are saying is wrong, you will also be able to listen patiently to people when they are right. Examine yourself in this way. I assure you it's possible if you try. Scholars, however, rarely rarely come and put the Dhamma into practice. There are some, but they are a few. It's a shame. The fact that you've made it this far and have come to visit is already worth a praise. It shows inner strength. So monastery also encourages, probably talking to a group of scholarly monks. Only encourages studying. The monks study and study and on and on with no end in sight and never cut that which needs to be cut. They only study the word peace, but if you can't stop still, then you will discover something of real value. This is how you do research. This research is truly valuable and completely immobile. It goes straight to what you've been reading about. If scholars don't practice meditation, however, their knowledge has little understanding. Once they put the teaching into practice, those things that they have studied about them become vivid and clear. So stop practicing. Develop this type of understanding. Give living in the forest a try and come come stay in one of these tiny huts, etc., etc. I'm telling you, it's great fun to closely observe how the mind works. I could happily talk about the subject the whole day. When you get to know the way of the mind, you'll see how this process functions and how it kept going through being brainwashed by the mind's impurities. I see the mind as merely a single point. Psychological states are guests who come to visit this spot. Sometimes this person comes to call. Sometimes that person pays a visit. They, they come to the visitor's center, train the mind to watch and know them all with the eyes of alert awareness. This is how you care for your heart and mind. Whenever a visitor approaches your wave, you wave them away. If you forbid them to enter, they are, where are they going to sit down? There is only one seat and you're sitting in it. Spend the whole day in this one spot, spot of mindfulness. This is the Buddha's firm and unshakable awareness. It watches over and protects the mind. You are sitting right here. Since the moment you emerge from the womb, every visitor that has, that's ever come to call has arrived right here. No matter how often they come, they always come to this spot right here. Knowing them all, the Buddha awareness sits alone, firm and unshakable. Those visitors journey here seeking to exert influence to condition and sway your mind in various ways. Then they succeed in getting the mind entangled in their issues, psychological states arise. Whatever the issue is, whatever it seems to be leading, just forget it, it doesn't matter. Simply know who the guests are as they arrive. Once they've dropped by, they will find that they are only there is only one chair and as long as you are occupying it, they will have no place to sit down. They come thinking to fill your ear with gossip, but this time there is no room for them to sit. Next time they come, there will be also be no chair free. No matter how many times these chattering visitors show up, they always meet the same fellow sitting in the same spot. You haven't budged from that chair. How long do you think they will continue to pop up with this situation? To put up with this situation? In just speaking to them, you get to know them thoroughly. Everyone and everything you've ever known since you began to experience the world will come for a visit. Simply observing and being aware right here is enough to see the Dhamma entirely. You discuss, observe, and contemplate by yourself. 
this is how you discuss Dhamma. I don't know how to talk about anything else. I can continue on speaking in this fashion, but in the end, it's nothing but talking and listening. I recommend you actually go and do the practice. If you have to look for yourself, you'll encounter certain experience. Well, this is, we can stop there. Give you an idea. Only one spot. Huh? But of course, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to find this experience straight away. Hmm? In fact, we like miniature visitors. That's a problem. We like to have parties. <laughs> we don't want to feel the alone there. Okay, so any questions? What's the difference between consciousness and the, and the clear mind, the mirror-like mind? Well, <clears throat> I'm touching on a tricky topic. In Buddhism, there are three words to express the mind. There's uh, the mind that's um, referred to the thinking mind. There is the consciousness, uh, mental consciousness, the sense, the mental sense that experiences thoughts. There's citta, which is more uh, refers more to the, the 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 totality of our experience, and citta. Uh, is also uh, translated as mind, heart. When we refer to mind, stroke, heart, is we refer to citta, which includes consciousness, which includes awareness, which includes the experience that we have through the senses. You know, it's a, the citta is what you experience from moment to moment. So um, there is awareness, and there is awareness of the content of the mind. You know, there's awareness, there's a seeing, the mind seeing, and there's a seeing of the object that enters the mind, like the visitors that Ajahn Chai was talking about. The visitors, we can see all the visitors. Okay? Don't get too bogged down because, again, as you say, words can really lead us away from practice. If we try to think, you know, what is awareness? What is space? You know, can you define space? You know, there's a part of the mind that is like space. And then there's an object in space. Like this room here. Imagine your mind being like just space. Hmm? I was confused because I think you said, um, you read that we had to give up consciousness, and yet it seems like consciousness... Well, you don't have to give up consciousness. You have to give up the suffering that this consciousness produces. In you, you don't give up consciousness. Don't let go of, you know, the candas, the body, you know, mind and body, sense consciousness. You know, it's there for a lifetime. We have to live with the sense consciousness, but we don't have to hang on to the suffering that this consciousness, that this sense consciousness, produces through a misapprehension of sense objects. Yes. Any other questions? Okay. So, time for tea. <laughs> <laughs>